<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina, the best way to keep current on news from China in just a few minutes a day. SupChina is a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I'm coming to you today from the Seneca South Studio in downtown Durham, North Carolina. I am joined from Nashville, Tennessee, by Jeremy Goldcorn, who is taking a break from helping Donald Trump with debate prep to chat with me today. How are you, Jeremy? <laughs> so yeah, so I'm, I see. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. You're Sorry, doing I all just the sniffing. Get the cocaine off the desk. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to do something about that. I mean, tell them to stop doing all that blow before the. Sh- yeah, anyway. Uh, so let's jump right in here, yeah, uh, and talk about the topic of the day. I mean, these days, it seems that there just aren't too many economists left in the so-called China bulls camp. I think that. Any casual observer would be forgiven for believing that China is on the brink of some serious economic catastrophe, given the daily deluge of negative headlines in mainstream media. But we've seen this movie before, haven't we? I mean, we've seen all the bears come out of the woods, presumably having done their business there on nigh countless occasions now. And so far, actually, you know, the sky has yet to fall. Uh, What is it that they've kept getting wrong? I mean, these chicken littles, these numerous perma bears... Well, today on Seneca, we're talking to one of the stalwarts among the more bullish on the Chinese economy, Andy Rothman of Matthews Asia. If you've been even a casual observer on China's economy over the last couple of decades, you've doubtless come across Andy's work. He was macroeconomist for the highly respected brokerage CLSA, which is very well known for its research. Um, And he did that for many years before joining Matthews Asia in San Francisco as an investment strategist in 2014. Prior to that, he had a long career in the U.S. Foreign Service, where his work focused on China. Like Kaiser and me, Andy moved back, in his case, to the United States fairly recently after 20 years in and around China. Andy Rothman, welcome to Seneca. Thanks. Good to be here. Andy, yeah, great to have you. Uh, Let's start with something very fundamental here. Uh, And this is something I feel compelled to raise with every economist that I talk to about China. So are there basic aspects of the Chinese economy that just set it apart from other major economies that require us to fundamentally alter the equations that we use when we're trying to model it? I mean, in other words, are there qualities of the Chinese political economy that are are unique to or are particular to China? Well, I guess uh, that's a great question. I guess the answer is yes and no. Um, We don't have to throw out all of the basic principles of economics, but we do have to take into context a lot of the things in China that are different. Uh, Often that's because of scale or just because China has evolved in a very bizarre way. So obviously, as everybody knows, it's a really big place, but it's gone through a transition that means that a lot of the metrics that we use to judge or evaluate the Chinese economy maybe 10 years ago, just don't work anymore. And we have to be Mm. flexible and take that into account. Andy, let's talk about some of the persistent notions about China's economy that we still commonly encounter. And perhaps we can start with this one. 
that China has an export-led economy. Does China have an export-led economy? No. And so maybe I should elaborate a little bit yeah, on that. Yeah, maybe you should. Uh, and and it, it, it's one of the things that uh, really surprises people when we talk about that. So, for example, uh, if you go back 15, 20 years ago, China was definitely an export-led economy. And that's what got China out of the dark ages in terms of economics was building the export engine. But that's no longer the case. So if we look at it in terms of the contribution of exports to China's economy, it's actually quite small. So in economics, we look at net exports. That's the value of exports minus the value of the imported goods that go into them. And these days, uh, net exports contribute roughly zero to China's GDP growth. Another way to look at that is that my estimate is that if we look at the value of everything that rolls out of Chinese factories today, only 10% gets exported. So 90% of what Chinese factories produce, including foreign-owned factories, is consumed at home. There's there's broad agreement, I think, and there has been for many years now, that China has to move away from investment-led growth and shift its economy to more consumption and particularly to more services. And um, from where I sit, at least, it looks an awful lot to me like consumption and services were growing awfully fast, at least during my last few years in China. Uh, so, I mean, give our listeners a sense of the progress that China has made actually toward achieving this elusive rebalancing. I think this is the most important point in terms of trying to understand the structure of the economy today. And it also helps explain why so many people are so overly pessimistic about China's conditions today or prospects for its future. A lot of the folks who I call the perma bearers on China, the people who have been, as you noted at the beginning of the show, predicting China's imminent economic collapse for more than a decade, have always said that the biggest concern they had was that China would not be able to rebalance or restructure away from a dependence on exports and on investment towards an economy like the US economy, uh -huh. which is driven primarily by services and consumption. But my argument is that that rebalancing process is already really well underway. So for example, in the first half of this year in China, almost three quarters of GDP growth came from the services and consumer part of the economy. That's up from a 40% share 10 years ago. So it's not to the 90% contribution that we get in the United States now, but it's moving rapidly in that direction. Another way to look at it is that this year is almost certainly going to be the fifth consecutive year in which the services and consumer part of the economy, the tertiary part in economic speak, is bigger than the manufacturing and construction part of the economy, the secondary part. So think about it. This is going to be the fifth consecutive year in which services and consumption are bigger than manufacturing and construction. Hmm. That really upends most people's notion of what drives China. And in fact, while this is the fifth year it's bigger, last year was the first year in which the services and consumer part was just over 50%. That's of right. It actually China's capped 50% to the tertiary sector in, in 2015, which was really remarkable yes. and, and not all that commonly remarked on, which I thought was odd. Yeah, I think it's something that people talked about in terms of they couldn't get there and now that they've gotten there not enough people have paid attention to it and that's really important because if you look at the old parts of the Chinese economy if you look at let's say the growth rate over the last several years of output of steel and coal and cement it's pretty weak you know you're looking at growth rates around one two three percent a year but if you look at the parts of the economy that reflect the growth in services and consumption that 
Uh, SUV sales are up by more than 40%, that express package deliveries are up by about 50%, which is a reflection of the tremendous growth of online retail. Uh, you look at the growth in tourism and other parts of the consumer story, and that's that's fantastic, and that's really driving growth. That's right, that's right. Andy, the, the issue perhaps most frequently brought up in, in the last year or two with respect to China's future economic prospects is debt. Debt, 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 debt. We hear again and again about a crippling debt problem. Can you help us shed some light on this? Firstly, what is this debt in, in layperson's terms? Who owes whom money? And then can you give us your bottom line? Is the current debt problem likely to provoke a real banking crisis or, or hard landing? Yeah, this is a great topic to talk about for two reasons. One is it's one of the top concerns that people have about China now. And the second is that when you dig into it, it helps you realize that often the headlines, stories about the problems in China are not getting down into the details enough to make it sensible. And for me, this is a great example of one of the many problems, one of the many challenges that the Chinese economy faces, which in my view, will contribute to what we've been seeing for the last 10 years, which is that every year for the last 10 years, almost every part of the Chinese economy has grown a little bit more slowly each year on a year-on-year basis. And I think that's likely what we're, to see, we're going to see in the future. Slightly slower growth, more volatility, but the risks of the hard landing crisis, everything going up in flames, the locusts descending, I think the risks of that are, are quite low. So let's look at the the debt problem on that side. One of the key distinctions between the debt problem in China and debt problems in the West is, as you know, who owes whom money. And one of the most important issues in China is it's not a household debt problem because that was really the foundation of the problem in the United States in the last decade was household debt ballooned up and it ballooned up primarily because of really poor quality mortgages. But in China, by any metric you want to use, household debt is quite low. And the household debt that's there is actually, in my view, really good quality debt, mostly because the Chinese really learned their lesson from what we got wrong. So for example, in 2006, the median cash down payment for a new home was 2% of the purchase price. <laughs> Think about that, yeah. just 2% of the purchase price. That's all you need to know about why we had so many problems back in the latter part of the last decade. But in China, up until about a year ago, the minimum cash down payment for a new home was 30%. Now it's 20, but most banks we talk to are still requiring 30% cash down. And that that's a huge difference. So it's important to get out of the way at the beginning that China does not have a household debt problem. Right, and even where there is household debt, it's 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 not very highly leveraged. Uh, let's dig a little bit deeper into the housing market and talk about that before we return to talking about the origins of other debt and about corporate debt specifically versus private sector debt. But let's talk a little bit about housing. I mean, we do hear a lot about the residential real estate market and it's being fueled by speculative home ownership. Is this is this really the case? I, I think that you you have a very strong position on this. Could you could you share that with us? Sure. And let me start by saying that this is an area where we have a lot of data collected independently from the Chinese government. So a lot of what I'm going to be talking about now is based on surveys conducted privately. And these surveys tell us that roughly 90% of the new homes bought in China 
are being bought by people who are going to make those homes their primary residence. So the level of speculative or investor buying in China is roughly 10% of total sales. Now, this is highly concentrated in a handful of cities like it is in most countries. You know, mm -hmm. there's not a lot of speculative residential investment in in the Midwest, for example. Right. Uh, but in LA or New York or in London, there is. And the same thing in Shanghai and Beijing. But on a national basis, it's low. And, and we have to also keep in mind that what we call the tier one cities in China, Shanghai, Beijing, Beijing, Shenzhen, Guangzhou, those are only about 5% of the urban population in China, and they only account for about 5% of the new home sales. So what happens in Shanghai, uh, like what happens in the New York property market, is interesting and significant, but it's not representative of the overall country. And these people who are buying a home to live in, they're putting down a lot of cash. And this is really important because we know, for example, if we look at Hong Kong, where during the Asian financial crisis in the late 90s, housing prices collapsed. But because people were required to put down 30% cash for their mortgages, the default rate only spiked up to 1.4%. Uh, can you give us a, a, big a comp difference. comparison to what the default rate was during the 2008-2009 meltdown? Well, I don't, have, I don't have that exact number, but that was also amplified a lot because in the United States, in addition to having very low cash down payment requirements, we had subprime which meant that people who wouldn't otherwise be qualified could get a mortgage. We had no documentation loans or sometimes referred to as liar loans. Mm -hmm. um, and that wasn't the case in Hong Kong and it's not the case in, in China. I, I know from personal experience that uh, the due diligence on the loan process is pretty uh, rigorous and we don't have subprime and therefore we don't have things like CDOs and CLOs of subprime. But j just yesterday, there was this announcement of, of more cities now where speculation in the housing market is being discouraged or even outright disallowed. I think it's now 10 cities uh, where I think you have to pay, say, 100% uh, for purchase of a second home. Is that indicative that maybe the problem is swelling? It's not just any longer in just first tier cities? Well, I think it's indicative of a couple problems. One is that there's a, a, a hyper hot residential property market in China right now. But we've been through this before. Typically, every few years, the market really takes off. The government puts in tighter restrictions, and then we go through two or three years of a weak market. In fact, just two years ago, I was having to write a, to calm people down who were worried that the property market was collapsing. And now those <laughs> same people are worried that the market is overheated. And you know, I go back through my archives, and I see that every few years, we run through these cycles. But it's important to see what the Chinese government is doing today to cool off the the market. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason the market's hyper hot is that Chinese tend to move with the, the herd. So when prices start going up, everyone's afraid they're going to go up forever. And They'll you know, miss you're the thinking about getting yeah. a Yeah, you're thinking about moving. Maybe you got married and had a kid or you got a promotion and you want a bigger place and you're thinking, I better get it now because it's only going to be even more expensive next year. And then when prices start to come down, they move in the herd as well and say, well, prices are falling. They're going to keep falling and I'm going to back out. So we go through these cycles. But look at what the Chinese government's doing now. On a central government level, they're backing off and saying, we want this to be handled locally, depending on the local conditions. So what we've seen are quite a few cities who have gone in to the speculative part of the market and said, you know, if you want to buy an investment property, we're now going to set the minimum cash down payment level at 70%. So that, that's, that's good in terms of making sure that the market is healthy. And if you can afford to put 70 or 100% down to buy an investment property, it also means you're well insulated if prices were to go down for a while. 
Andy, we've got to get back to debt and who exactly owes whom the money. But just before we do that, one more question on property. Um, another common theme in media reporting on Chinese economy is ghost cities. And of course, it makes for uh, spectacular photographs when you, you know, have huge areas of new housing that appear to be empty. What is your take on ghost cities? Are they a real problem? Uh, Jeremy, it's one of my favorite topics. I've been I'm kind of a weird tourist, I guess. I've been visiting ghost cities across China for many years now. And uh, I think, again, this is a reflection of the fact that we often don't understand that while the laws of economics still apply to China, a lot of the context is different. So in most parts of the world, when you buy a new apartment or a house, you want to move in right away. In China, people usually buy an apartment one or two years before they're going to move in, in part because most new homes are sold on what we call a pre-sale basis. You buy the apartment with a lot of cash down a year or two before it's completed. And then the other important thing is that a lot of the new homes that are being built now in Chinese cities are being built out in new suburban areas where the government has reclaimed land, sold it to private developers and said, you build the flats on a commercial basis and we, the government, will build the public infrastructure, subway, light rail, schools, roads, hospitals. Normally, the apartments get finished ahead of the public infrastructure. So we regularly see not really ghost cities, but maybe ghost looking projects where a block of 10 flats is done, sold, but nobody's living there yet because the infrastructure is not ready. But when I go back to these places a couple of years later after the infrastructure is done, they're pretty lively and, and filled up. So a good example of this, many of your listeners may have seen a report on China's ghost cities that 60 Minutes uh, ran uh, a few years ago, yes. where they went and visited the Zhengdong district of the city of Zhengzhou. Now, this is also representative of what's happening in urban China, because you know, in the United States, we have nine cities with a population of a million or more, according to the Census Bureau. China's got more than 150 cities with more than a million people. And Zhengzhou is a good example of this. No one's ever heard of it before. It's about the size of the Washington, D.C., Arlington, Virginia metro area. Uh, most of the world's iPhones are assembled there. But, you know, it sounds like a, a, a hick down to us because we're, we're not familiar with it. Well, I'm Hunanese, Zheng... so I mean, I <laughs> <laughs> And this uh, Zhengdong district where 60 Minutes went and filmed was a classic example of what I was talking about. So they went and filmed this project and it looked finished, but there were no people or cars on the street. Well, I went back two years later after they filmed and went to the same places with a video camera. And there's a five minute video on the Matthews Asia website on the Synology page that you can look at. And we'll put a link it to was, it. It was full. Yeah. I sat in traffic all day and, and there's one simple reason why what had been a ghost city two years ago was now filled up. Subway was open. <laughs> People bought the flat. They were moving out of a small, crummy downtown place into a much nicer, bigger, new place in the suburbs. But they didn't want to actually make the move because the subway wasn't open yet, so it wasn't easy to commute. And if you ask a, a person in Zhengdong, why did you buy a flat two or three years before you were going to move in? They, their response is very simple. Well, if I waited till after the subway opened, it was going to be more expensive. Now, we went back to 60 Minutes and said, uh, would you like to go back and revisit Zhengdong and talk about how a ghost city is no longer 
ghostly and um, they they were busy with other things. Of course they were. Yeah, I used to enjoy ghost city tourism and then it just got too crowded. It was no fun anymore. <laughs> uh, it's like that Yogi Berra uh, quote that that restaurant is so popular nobody goes there exactly, anymore. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's what Jeremy used to say it all the time. <laughs> yeah, well, in Beijing, it's <laughs> that uh, is often the case. Um, Andy, let's get back to the debt. So it's not household debt that's the problem. So where is the problem? The problem in China is corporate debt. Any way you measure it, like if you look at corporate debt to GDP, the ratio is one of the highest in the world. And this is a serious problem. But the question for all of us is, is this a problem that's going to result in a crash, crisis, hard landing, or is this another one of those problems that I talked about before that is going to be expensive to clean up, is going to contribute to slightly slower growth each year and a little bit more volatility? And let me explain why I think it's going to be the latter. What's really important about the corporate debt in China and the debt position overall is understanding that the origin of this debt problem came from the global financial crisis. Right. At that point, exports were much more important to the Chinese economy than they are now. And in the US and Europe and Japan, because of the crisis, everybody stopped buying stuff, including stuff made in China. And as a result, about 20 million Chinese lost their jobs in a very short period of time. These were mostly young rural people with limited skills who had moved to cities to produce iPhones and IKEA furniture for export. That dried up, they, they lost their jobs, and the government was in a panic over the risks to social stability. And the first thing they must have considered was, should we devalue the renminbi, the Chinese currency, to boost exports and get these people back to work again? But they correctly realized that that would not help. You mean Donald Trump was wrong? <laughs> on, on just that issue. Uh, <laughs> The reason that people weren't buying Chinese goods wasn't that they weren't competitive because of the exchange rate. It was just that nobody was buying anything. So in fact, during the height of the crisis, I went down to southern China to, to Dongguan, where a lot of the exports were produced and met with a lot of factory managers and asked each one of them if the Chinese government was to devalue the currency by 25%, how much would it help? And they all just laughed at me and said, we've already offered. 25% discounts to our clients and nobody's biting. So they didn't devalue the currency like they didn't devalue the currency in 97. Instead, the Chinese government chose to implement the biggest Keynesian stimulus since Keynes. They brought <laughs> forward construction of public works projects, roads, bridges, power plants, water plants that were scheduled to be built in future years to create more jobs to suck up some of the unemployment from the export plants. Now, in order to pay for that, in most countries, governments would have turned to fiscal spending or maybe municipal bonds, but in China, they chose to use bank loans. And prior to that point, the debt level in China, the corporate debt level was modest and not growing very fast. That was the beginning where the debt problem really took off. And the reason they used bank loans is back then and today, all the major banks in China are controlled by the Communist Party. So when I went and met with party officials and asked them, why were you using banks for this, unlike other countries, they said, well, since we control all the banks and the branch managers answer to us, we feel we have better control over how the money is going to be spent by deputizing these bank branch managers to keep an eye on everything and be responsible for it. That was the origin of the debt problem, and that's what the Chinese government is having to deal with today. But we also have to recognize that 
this debt problem was useful back then. There wasn't a lot of social instability. They built a lot of public infrastructure that is useful and productive today. And it kind of put a floor under global growth, which was helpful to everybody. But mm-hmm. the corporate debt problem is a hangover for that. I guess I guess the, the follow-up question that is, okay, we know now who, who was actually making the loans, that was state-owned banks. Were they making them to the private sector or were they making them to major state-owned enterprises? And, and if so, you know, what industries, what sectors were they making these loans in? Great question. If we look at the growth in loans that started back that point, that point, what it tells us is that the debt burden for state-owned enterprises, SOEs, government-owned companies, rose sharply, but the debt burden for private companies, entrepreneurial firms like drive our economy in the United States, it started to fall. We've actually seen privately-owned companies deleveraging in China. And this is a really key distinction because another one of the things that I think makes people overly pessimistic about China today is not realizing how much the structure of the Chinese economy has changed in terms of private ownership. Right. So, for example, when I started working in China 30 years ago, there were no privately owned companies at all. Today, more than 80 percent of employment in China is with privately owned small entrepreneurial companies. All of the new job creation in China today comes from small private companies. And these companies actually have a modest debt level in general. The problem is highly concentrated with several hundred state-owned companies, largely in sectors related to construction of those public works projects we talked about before. So when people say debt problems are always the same, they're, they're missing a big point of context in China, which is that the debt problem in China is a corporate debt problem, which arose from the state directing a state-controlled bank to lend money to a state-owned company to build state-directed public infrastructure. So I'm tempted then I mean, to, to interpret this not as lending in the sense that we're used to in developed Western countries, but more as social welfare. Is that, is that a fair interpretation? Exactly. And I'm sure that when back in uh, 08, 09, uh, the government planners went to the government-controlled banks and said, we'd like you to lend more money to this steel mill or coal mine in your area, the bank branch manager said, well, really? Are you sure? Because that company is already struggling to service its existing debt. And the government planner would have said, we understand that, but this is really about social welfare. This is to build public infrastructure projects, which are going to be useful long term, but more importantly, in the short term, we're worried about all, all those guys who got laid off from the IKEA factory or the iPad factory. And everybody knew these were not sustainable. And the question is, what are you going to do with that debt problem? But because it's highly concentrated in a relatively small number of state-owned companies, the Chinese government doesn't have to resort to the cleanup methodology that we had to use in, let's say, the UK or the US, which is tighter credit, tighter monetary policy, which is going to hurt every company, good and bad. Instead, they can go to the relatively small number of state-owned companies that are responsible for this debt problem, who, by the way, are the least efficient and the dirtiest, most polluting companies in China as well, and start to deal with that. So it's almost as though we need a new word because corporate debt, I think, gives the wrong – I mean, if you're not familiar with the Chinese economy, you think of private companies. And so when people are talking about corporate debt in China – it means something very different from the same phrase applied in the United States or, or Western Europe. 
Yes, and that goes back to the opening question uh, at the top of the show, which is, do the rules apply to China? And they do, but we un need to understand the context that this is not debt the way we normally think about it. This was not a Lehman Brothers saying, hey, we can make a fortune lending money to this company, and even if it goes bad, we'll do okay. Right. Um, this was, again, the state directing a state-controlled bank to lend money to a state-owned company. Doesn't mean there's not a problem out there. It doesn't mean it's not going to be expensive to clean up. It will. But it shouldn't cause a, a, a banking crisis. And we're starting to see the beginning, I think, of this cleanup process. Still, still in the early days, but the early days are that over the last 18 months, there's been a big acceleration in the formation of non-performing loans or NPLs. So the, the government is now telling the government banks to start recognizing and dealing with these bad debts. But at the same time, there's also been a big acceleration in the write-off of those loans. So what this means is that the bad debt is being taken from the state company, transferred for a brief period of time to the balance sheet of the state controlled bank, which is then selling it and taking a, a bit of a loss to a state owned asset management company, which means that the bad debts being transferred from the state company to the balance sheet of the communist party or the state. And so rather than a banking crisis like we had here, what I think we're going to see is the fiscal deficit to GDP ratio in China, the government's balance sheet is going to rise. And so over the coming decade, the government's ability to spend a lot of money on healthcare and education uh, and cleaning up pollution is going to be increasingly constrained. And so that will be an issue over time. But again, it's not the kind of crash and burn scenario that a lot of people are forecasting. Well, so, why not a direct social welfare transfer then instead? I mean, if it ends up on, uh, their, on their balance sheet anyway, on the, the, the Communist Party's balance sheet anyway, I mean, why not just, just crank up social programs and simply, I mean, they, they did that as part of the stimulus for sure, right? They, they gave, you know, appliance vouchers for people to buy white goods in rural areas. They, they did some of this, yes? Yes, but what they were really worried about back during the global financial crisis was unemployment. Right. Ah, uh, I see. You know, okay. With right. so you, maybe you had to keep them right, right. 20 million people out of work from those export processing factories. And if you brought forward these construction projects, you created jobs. Now, maybe they weren't great jobs digging ditches or, you know, driving a, a, a front loader or waving a flag on the side of the road or even an accounting job. But it did create work. And the main thing they wanted to do was avoid uh, a large number of unemployed young people taking to the streets and they succeeded there. But at the same time, they were spending a lot of money and they still are on, on education and healthcare and the environment. All of those things, government spending is rising at double digit rates for many years now. Uh, but what's going to happen is over time, they're going to have to cut back the growth rate on that spending in order to deal with the debt problem. There's another issue that is a frequent theme uh, in media reporting uh, on the Chinese economy, and that is capital flight. What's your take on this? Uh, what do you think is actually causing outflows of capital? Well, this is a great example of how we tend to cycle through stories or reasons why China is going to collapse. And then when it doesn't collapse for that reason, we completely forget about that and move on to the next thing. <laughs> um, so you might remember that in January and February, uh, the media was just full of people talking about how all the 
hard currency, the foreign exchange reserves in China was flooding out. Uh, this was going to be a disaster. They were going to run out of foreign exchange reserves. There was going to be a massive 20, 30% devaluation of the Chinese currency against the US dollar. Well, when was the last time you heard anybody talk about that? Because it didn't happen. And I think the reason it didn't happen was what we were highlighting to uh, investors in our funds back at the beginning of the year, which was we just called a lot of Chinese companies and found out why the money was leaving China. Corporate treasurers of Chinese companies were sitting on a lot of cash. And when there was steady appreciation of the renminbi versus the dollar, and when there was a big interest rate differential, a lot of them had moved their money offshore, raised debt in Hong Kong, denominated in US dollars. Right. But as the Chinese currency at the beginning of the year started to depreciate a little bit, and as LIBOR started to rise and that interest rate differential evaporated, that was no longer a great bet. So we would call Chinese companies who said, yeah, we've just been moving a lot of our hard currency from China to Hong Kong to repay that debt. And then we were going to reissue the debt in China because it just made more financial sense at that time. But companies were also telling us that they were largely finished with that process. So that's why we believe that this flood of outflows was going to taper off pretty quickly. And in fact, it's now slowed down dramatically. And to me, this is capital outflows, not capital flight. My definition of capital flight is all those entrepreneurs we talked about, the people that drive the Chinese economy saying, I think my economy is, is tanking. I'm going to sell my business. I'm going to sell my property. I'm going to throw the kids in the cash in the back of the minivan with the dog and we're leaving the country. We, we aren't seeing that. Yeah, Chinese are buying homes in, in, in London and in Vancouver and San Francisco, but that's wealth diversification. The big flood has turned into a trickle. And all those people who predicted that by now China would run out of foreign exchange reserves hasn't happened. All those people who had predicted that by now the Chinese currency would have devalued by 20, 30 percent. Well, it's down by about 3 percent from the beginning of the year against the U.S. dollar after having risen by about 50% in real effective terms over the last 10 years. What, what do you honestly believe is the source of the pessimism that you just see outside of China right now? I mean, what would you say is the essence, the hard nub of your disagreement with your, your, your more bearish colleagues? I mean, these are qualified, presumably intelligent observers, and, and they keep getting it wrong time and time again, uh, whereas you know people who are more in your camp, I mean, if I had put my money with you, I think I would have done a little bit better. What's going on here? Well, I, I think the problem is twofold. One is that the story that we've been talking about on the show is kind of boring. You know, China's <laughs> muddling through. Oh, don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> They're muddling through. Everything's going to be fine. It's just going to grow a little bit more slowly each year. There's going to be some volatility, and every once in a while we're going to get nervous about things, but it'll be okay. I mean, that's really boring compared to the places just full of ghost cities and it's there's going to be a hard landing and a crisis and China's going to collapse and the world's going to go down with it. I mean, that sells more newspapers. It gets more clicks and eyeballs on the web. And I, I think that's part of it. And then I think the other part is that a lot of people just haven't taken the time to understand what's actually happening in China. And and so I think almost all of the people who are telling you that China is going to collapse for one reason or another don't recognize the 
changes that we talked about before, that it's no longer an export-led economy, that it's now no longer an investment-led economy, that services and consumption drive growth, that while we hear primarily about state-owned firms because they're big, most of the growth and all the new job creation and wealth creation is coming from small entrepreneurial firms just like in the United States. People just don't realize this because, well, you know, we've got a lot of things on our plate here and we don't spend enough time worrying about China. But this is one of the really important points that we try to get across to investors is even if you're never going to invest in China, you really need to know what's going on there because last year China was by itself responsible for 35% of global economic growth. That's a greater share of global economic growth last year than came from the US, Europe, and Japan combined. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you look at all of the Asian countries that we invest in at Matthews Asia, that was 60% of global growth last year. So it has a huge impact on the global economy. It has a huge impact on US companies from GM to Ford and Apple and Nike. It has a big impact on Janet Yellen's thinking. So understanding what's happening in China past the headline grabbing nonsense about the next reason why it's going to collapse next week that's on TV is really important for everybody, I think. Right, right, right. Andy, what in your mind are the major sources of the Chinese economy seeming resilience? Is it things like the high household savings rate and the relatively liquid banking sector? And what about the informal economy? Because it always occurs to me reading articles about China's economy that outside observers tend to discount how big the economy is that isn't necessarily measured in the statistics. All the informal stores, lining sides of roads that never pay taxes or report their revenues, the the massage parlors, the thousands <laughs> I mean, you would and say millions the massage of, well, it's a, I, I mean, it's a real question. None of these companies uh, are paying uh, anything like what they perhaps should be in taxes or, or reporting their revenues. And therefore, I would imagine a lot of the, the, the commentary based on official or statistics or statistics collected by economists looking at numbers that are reported on bits of paper and spreadsheets are yeah. missing some of the picture. Okay, so three things here, like so household savings rates, uh, liquidity in the banking sector, and then the size of the informal economy. You want to comment a little bit on each of these? Yeah, I think all of those are important. Uh, think about it this way. Most of us in the United States probably think that the average American company is a behemoth like Walmart or GM because that's what we read about all the time. But according to the U.S. Census Bureau, three quarters of U.S. companies are so small that they don't have a payroll. Only 2% of U.S. companies have more than 100 employees, and it's the same thing in China. Uh, do a lot of these really small companies in China avoid paying taxes? I'm sure. I, I think if we dig deeper, the source for a lot of the success in China has been just that the Chinese government and what's technically called the Communist Party has made some fundamentally sound and entrepreneurial decisions. In fact, you know, you mentioned before that, that I recently moved back to the United States after living in China for about 20 years. And I'm living in Berkeley, California now, and so I like to tell people that there are more people who believe in Marxist-Leninist theory in my neighborhood in California than there are in all of Beijing. Um, <laughs> they really unleashed uh, an entrepreneurial wave um, in a place that had no entrepreneurs at all 30 years ago. And I, I think that while we, it's still called the communist country, 
the Communist Party, uh, they have done something unique in the history of authoritarian regimes. They've voluntarily relaxed control over the economy. As I said, 80% of employment, all the new job creation is private. And they've also voluntarily relaxed control over what I call people's personal freedom. So when I started working in China 30 years ago, the party was in your life, in your face, all day, every day. They told you where to live, uh, where to go to school, what to study when you graduated. They assigned you to a job with a party-controlled institution. They could even back then veto your choice of spouse if they wanted to. Today, none of that applies, and you can pretty much do anything you want, including start your own business, move to another town, leave the country, take your cash out, um, stay home and play video games all day. Now, obviously, this doesn't apply to politics. If you try and create what the party feels is an organized threat to their rule, they're just as brutal and repressive as they were before. But from the economic and personal freedom sphere, it's been a, a night and day change, and I think that's helped propel the economy forward. It also puts a tremendous amount of pressure on the Communist Party, I think, to keep making these changes, to keep expanding the envelope for economic and personal freedom, and eventually it's going to require them to expand the envelope on political freedom as well. Um, so, Andy, uh, speaking of politics, um, what is your take on political risk in, in China? Because that is one of the other disaster scenarios you often hear about in terms of looking at the future of China is that there, there's going to be a political crisis because of, you know, perhaps a crisis of legitimacy of, uh, of the Communist Party. And that is going to bring everything crashing down. How do you see that as a risk factor? Well, I, I think we have to be careful not to superimpose our own framework for what makes us happy and content uh, on that of Chinese people. You know, for Chinese people, uh, right now, economics and personal freedom are at the top of their list. The idea that they want to overthrow their government because they don't have the ability to go to the polls soon and vote for a Chinese version of Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton is not realistic. <laughs> Instead, look at things like the recent Pew Global Attitude Survey. This is a U.S. polling company that just published its latest China poll where they found that about 80 percent of Chinese people think their kids are going to be financially better off than they are. How does the number compare to the U.S.? Uh, the U.S. number is about 30%. Hmm. Um, now, this is going to be a moving picture, but for right now, I think those are the most important issues for, for Chinese people. And uh, I think the risks of political instability in China um, over anybody's investment time horizon are, are very, very low. But if you're asking me what I'm concerned about over a 10 to 25-year period, then yes, will the party be able to deal with the fact that you've got a rapidly growing middle class, uh, people who see what's available to citizens in other countries and who say, well, now that I'm paying taxes, I want to have a say in how this money is spent. I'm worried about how my kid's education is going and how the environment's going. Uh, shouldn't I have input with my local government? Yeah, these are definitely factors that are going to be increasingly important over the coming decades but not something that I think is a significant risk if you're thinking about the next five to 10 years. Andy, so what are the other challenges that you think China is going to face over the next few decades, aside from political risk? Well, I think overall, 
the the biggest risk is can the government or the communist party and i'll use them interchangeably uh can they continue to make pragmatic economic decisions uh can they continue to try and withdraw from the parts of the economy where they still have a, a big role like the financial sector and can they continue to relax people's personal freedom but if we look at the issues that are making people anxious today uh, over here as opposed to in china you know I, I don't see a risk for example of a housing bubble because to me bubbles are all about leverage if you're if you're investing in tulips or in real estate and you've put a lot of cash down if the price goes down the damage is not there as i mentioned earlier the real problem in the united states wasn't that housing prices went down by 10 or 20 percent it was that we allowed people to buy houses with almost no money down so they immediately were underwater if you're putting 20 or 30 percent cash down you can ride out a weak housing market uh surveys have been done private surveys have been done in china that show that uh, almost 100 percent of the middle class own their own home but about half of them have no mortgage debt at all and jeremy mentioned before the high savings rate this is a key factor the household savings rates about 25 percent the gross savings rate nationally is almost 50 percent and the banking system is incredibly liquid here's another way to picture that more concretely chinese people families have in the bank the equivalent in dollar terms of the combined gdps of russia brazil india and italy russia brazil india and italy wow my God. Right. So, you know, the growth in the Chinese consumer story is being driven not by people maxing out their credit cards or taking out home equity loans. It's being driven by tremendous income growth. So, for example, over the last 10 years, income's been growing at about 10% in inflation adjusted terms in China. You know, so, for example, over the last 10 years, in real terms, the average Chinese person's income's gone up over 100% compared to about 10% in the United States. Hmm. Andy, we recently spoke to Mei Fong, who's the author of One Child, and uh, one of the, the scenarios that we talked about was, of course, this demographic shift that's now underway where you have a, an aging population and really you know, enormous pension and social security burdens that are going to be shifted onto the shoulders of this one child generation in, in coming decades. Do you see this as a major concern? Uh, I think some months back, uh, Arthur Krober, who I know you hold in very, very high regard, was forecasting a kind of Japan in the 90s scenario. And part of part of what's similar is the, the kind of demographic shape. What do you make of that? Okay. Uh, good question. And, and Mei Fong's book is terrific. I, I really recommend that. Let's talk first about the one-child policy. That's a great example of some of the horrors that Chinese people had to live through. Um, not just that they could only have one child, but the way that it was enforced for many years. Uh, but it's also an example of how the Chinese government is now slowly recognizing these mistakes and fixing them. So they've effectively lifted uh, the one-child policy now, which is great. But this is primarily great from a personal freedom perspective. Uh, perspective, it is highly unlikely to have a material impact on the birth rate. Surveys have been done of Chinese families and urban Chinese are saying, you know, we're, we're glad that the government is out of our bedroom, but we're still likely to only have one kid for the same kind of reasons that family size have gone down in wealthier places around the world. That's it's more right. expensive. Both people are working. Um, it's a housing issue. And, um, you know, as the one-child policy has been relaxed, we haven't seen a big jump in, in the birth rate. So the long-term demographic trend in China will continue to be one of an aging population, despite 
the lifting of the one-child policy. But let's put this in context. Today, the share of the Chinese population that's 65 or older is about 10%. In Japan, it's about 25% of the population is 65% older. China isn't going to be as old as Japan is until 2040. So this is a problem, but it's a long-term structural problem. And, and so we have to watch and see how they deal with it over time. But, you know, they do have time to deal with it. And I think the best way of dealing with it is continuing to promote the rebalancing of the economy towards more high value added jobs and services and consumption and away from making cheap shoes and toys and textiles. And that stuff has been leaving China and moving to countries that are in earlier stages of development like Cambodia and Sri Lanka and Vietnam. Andy Rothman, it has been a real pleasure speaking with you, and thanks so much for taking the time. If you're interested in reading Andy's latest, please make sure to check out the Synology column on Matthews Asia. Just go to MatthewsAsia.com and click on the Perspectives on Asia tab to find it. Andy, I hope you'll stick around with us and uh, make a recommendation for our listeners. Thank you. Yeah, great. So before we get to recommendations, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at SupChina.com. You can follow SupChina on Twitter at, at SupChinaNews and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SupChinaNews. If you like the Cynic Podcast, by all means, leave us a positive review on the Apple App Store or on Google Play, whichever you use for uh, your app reviews. This really helps, and it means an awful lot to us. So, on to recommendations. And Jeremy, would you do us the honors of kicking it off? Absolutely. Kaiser, you recommended uh, a few episodes back, uh, Battle Cry of Freedom by James McPherson, which is a one-volume history of America's Civil War which I've started reading and um, is, is really wonderful. And it's, um, as a foreigner or perhaps an ignoramus, I mean, I don't think I had an idea of how important it was to understand the Civil War to really understand uh, the America of today. Um, well, we both live in the South. Yeah, absolutely. You need particularly here well. where, you know, you see uh, historical markers all over the place and, uh, you know, occasionally Confederate flags and the, the past is, is still very much... Um, with us. Um, but there's another book I'd like to recommend uh, that I enjoyed very much. It's, it's a sort of novelized version of the Battle of Gettysburg called The Killer Angels uh, by Michael Shara. Yeah, I believe it's very well known, but I hadn't actually heard of it until a secondhand bookstore owner recommended it to me here in Nashville. Uh, so Killer Angels and a second plug for Battle Cry of Freedom. Thanks. Those are excellent recommendations. Yeah, The Killer Angels is is great. It's a multi-perspective. Uh, it, it looks at the battle from a number of, of participants in it. Um, Stonewall Jackson. Uh, I, I got the name of the heroic guy from Maine who led that, who actually led that bayonet charge down. Uh, I'm, I'm spacing. Anyway, Andy, why don't you, you tell us what you've got for us this week? Thanks. Well, if you don't mind, I'm going to stretch it a little bit and recommend two books. Absolutely. Um, and this is by one couple, so maybe I can get away with it that way. Uh, Sydney and Eulin Rittenberg. Um, two amazing autobiographies. Uh, Sidney Rittenberg is an American who the U.S. Army taught Chinese to and then sent him over to China during World War II. And he ended up 
joining Mao and Zhou Enlai on the Long March, became their translator, uh, later went on to Beijing with them after the People's Republic was set up in 1949, was one of the few foreigners to join the Communist Party. But then Mao turned on him and Sidney spent more than 15 years in Chinese prisons in solitary confinement before finally being released. And his story of going through all of that is just incredible. Yeah. Uh, and uh, full disclosure, Sidney and Yulin are friends, and he's still, I think, one of, uh, one of the, the great interpreters of what's happening in the Chinese political scene there. And his autobiography is called The Man Who Stayed Behind. And his wife, Wang Yulin, who writes, uh, is published under the name Yulin Rittenberg, um, has more recently published her own autobiography, the story of growing up really poor in China, uh, meeting Sydney uh, when they worked together at the Communist Party radio station in Beijing, and then how she and her kids were persecuted uh, by the government because she was married to a person who Mao had locked up for being a spy. Um, a fantastic read as well. So it's Yulin Rittenberg, and the name of the book is After the Bitter Comes the Sweet. Mm. Uh, Jeremy, you want to do? We want to spoil the fact that we're going to be talking to to Sydney very soon. I guess you just did. We I have just did. Uh, uh, an interview with Sydney planned for December. So uh, towards the end of the year or early next year, we will have a podcast interview with him. Yeah, a Christmas present for everyone. That I'm really looking forward to it. Let's make it a nice long conversation and release it in several parts. And he has so much to say. I mean, it, the man has just had such an incredible storied life, and his his experiences and his perspectives are going to be of tremendous value to our listeners. So we'll make sure to do that. After the the bitter comes the sweet, as you say, as Yulin Rittenberg has written, I, I am going to talk about my bitter experiences with finding the perfect eating apple in in America. Uh, I I was a big fan of the Yantai apple. You know, they're more famous for their pears, I suppose, but Yantai in Shandong province, they grow tremendously good apples. And my first experiences in the grocery stores here in, in, in the States with finding good apples were, were terrible. They looked great, these, you know, Washington State red apples, but they were just miserable. I mean, mushy and mealy. I have discovered, though, the Honeycrisp apple, which was actually, it turns out, released back in the early 90s. Um, it's, it's just, it's sweet, it's firm, it's crisp, it just has the right amount of tart best eating apple I have yet discovered, and I recant my long-standing assertion that the anti-apples are the best. So yeah, the Honeycrisp apple, my recommendation. I, I eat one seriously every day, at least one every day. They're so good. Uh, and there you have it. <laughs> Not much use to people outside the United States, that recommendation. No, I don't but, think you can but, get them elsewhere. But <laughs> I, I guess it looks it looks like, our, like what, 53% of our listeners are in America, it turns out. So... For the other 47%, stick, stick with the Yentai apple. They're great. Um, thanks once again, Andy, for taking the time to join us and, and for sharing your insights, which are in, incredibly valuable to us. Thanks. Thank you, Kaiser and Jeremy. Enjoyed it. And Jeremy, I am looking forward to seeing you out here in North Carolina again. Uh, we, we had a, a, a great stay last time, and uh, let's, let's, let's do it again soon. Indeed. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Special thanks this week to Anla Cheng, Amadeo Tumalillo, and Soraya Darabi from SubChina. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast. 
and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.